Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello and welcome to the Hobcast, show number 80. Show no, number 80. It's a little late this week. I'm sorry, it's my fault, entirely my fault. And the reason is... Can't we blame Scotland? Well, I, I don't think we can blame Scotland. The fact that I was in Scotland is the real reason why it's a little late. Uh, the other reason is that, you know, trying to record while halfway up a Grampian mountainside is not necessarily going to be the guarantee of good Wi-Fi connection. So we should explain that we did try, didn't we? We did. We recorded on Saturday, is the honest truth. And I was on the veranda of a wonderful golf course at Pitlochry which is uh, in the foothills of the Grampians. And I was in the pink chair over re- there. <laughs> yeah, over there, my favourite chair. And, uh, yeah, the, the line kept dropping out. So I couldn't hear him. And I was guessing what he was asking, so it, it just turned into a disaster. It was a shambles. It was a shambles. And the reason I was in Scotland, as I explained last week, was I was at the Open Championship yesterday, which is one of the most memorable experiences I shall ever enjoy, I think, because... Well, it's St Andrews. It's the home of golf, and it was an amazing finish in terms of what Cameron Smith did, the Australian who looks like he's a a refugee from the um, uh, American Civil War with his sort of thin moustache and a little bit of a mullet, um, was incredible. He just shot an amazing round of golf. Rory McIlroy couldn't respond to it, and um, I've, you know, really, really... uh, had a wonderful time, and I took my two Who are these people of which you speak? Rory McIlroy is... (laughs) Arguably, after Tiger Woods... Uh, I've heard of him. Right, the world's most talked-about golfer is Rory McIlroy. Well, they don't talk to me about him. No, and he's won four major titles, and this would have been his fifth and his third Open Championship. But And he led with four shots, um, by four shots over Smith. He's called Rory. Rory, yeah. Jane Mapp's cat is called Rory. Really? Yes. OK, probably spelled differently, I would imagine. Uh, R-O-R-Y? OK, yeah, same. Anyway, Rory was, you know, basically it was a coronation. Uh, that was the plan. And uh, we, we sat, my, my sons and I, at the 11th hole, which allowed us to watch the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th and 11th holes from where we had our, uh, our grandstand, which was great. And uh, at that stage, it looked like, you know, he couldn't lose. But Cameron Smith shot one of the best rounds, certainly the, best, the last nine holes. He picked up six shots in nine holes. It was an extraordinary performance and won the title. And Jane, so, yeah. Jane sent me a photo of Rory this morning. Rory has a lot of fur, so Rory is very hot. I see. Well, Rory McElroy used to have uh, something of an issue with curly hair. Ah, just like the cat. When he was younger and he just had the worst, he had the worst baseball cap hair ever. And then sometimes, you know, he would open, you know, take his cap off and his hair would spring up like, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it was like, it was, it was almost like an afro, but he's Caucasian. So it well, just, you can have naturally curly it just hair, was bad. It was problem hair. And now he looks, he's mature at the age of 32. He looks like he's lived into his hair now. 
Maybe it's with the name. If you're called Rory, you're going to have lots of hair. Possibly. Should we get on with the programme and explain who we are and what we do? Oh, yeah. Let's do that. This is the Hopcast Book Show. You're extremely welcome to join us. And my name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we have created Hobeck Books. And Hobeck is a UK independent publisher of the following genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrillers. And suspense. Was that Scottish? Kind of. Crap, really. But I tried. I heard some great, great Scottish accents. And um, <laughs> there was one guy. We got on the park and ride bus to, to, to go back to the car park outside St Andrews last night. And uh, he was, he was you know, uh, not the tallest bloke ever, but he managed to bash his head on the ceiling of the bus. And, oh, me head. I loved it, you know. <laughs> Uh, it just reminds me of, you know, when you get a really good Scottish accent, just how, how wonderful it is. And just one of the things I noticed a lot was a lot of Americans over for the Open Championship. It's, you know, it's the Mecca going to St Andrews for them. And um, they, uh, the interaction between the Scots and Americans just is just wonderful to watch because everything the, uh, a Scot says, the Americans are trying to turn to participate but at the same and, and interpret but at the same time they just all they do is they refer to you you know the wonderful welcome because the scots can be taking the mickey out of the person across the counter but the americans don't recognize no because they don't they don't recognize that sort of humor do they no, no they take it, everything at face value it, it, in, that in fairness to, to to everybody i met up, up there in perth and kinross and in fife um over the last three four days uh, thank you. You've been wonderful. Um, it was just one of the best uh, few days I've had in a very, very long time. And uh, uh, I know my boys appreciated the opportunity to be there. So um, I come back very tired, though, because we... I'm grumpy. Just, well, a little bit grumpy. Yeah, I am grumpy. Look, I've, I, <laughs> I had a weekend where my... Um, to, to, you know, just take you into my confidence a little bit. I have to wear a, a breathing machine at night. Uh, to cope with sleep apnea. But Muggins here managed to uh, leave a vital part of it back here in Staffordshire. And so I haven't had the benefit of uh, that machine for the last three, four, five nights. And it's really taken its toll, as you can imagine, because I can't sleep uh, at all, really. And um, as a result, I was very, very tired. But then we decided that because my son has a work commitment this morning, we had to drive back from the Open Championship 350 miles to eventually get back here at three in the morning. And um, I did all the driving. So I'm absolutely shattered. There's no question about that. He is, and I didn't water his plants, so I'm in the doghouse. Okay, we have a pot <laughs> of parsley, which has wilted in our kitchen. It's only probably cost me a quid. But I've been lovingly tending that one, trying to keep it alive, and it's wilted. But, but anyway. I wasn't asked to. I didn't notice something. Well, I, I did actually mention it, but unfortunately, I think it's just one of those things in the My rough... head. Yes. Look, it's nothing. Let's not worry about it. <laughs> we did have a little bit of a thing this morning, just just literally five minutes before we started recording this podcast. It's a minor thing. I That's can... what I think. I know. <laughs> I've made a major thing of it. I'm sorry. Anyway, welcome to the show. Let's uh, mention who our guest is. We really are digressing today. We, <laughs> and that's not any different from the We are joined show. by AJ Aberford. Well, actually, he's really Tony Gartland. Tony um, joined us a few months ago and is bringing some wonderful books. The George Zamet series from Malta. He's a Maltese policeman and gets hooked into a series of amazing adventures across the Mediterranean. And um, we don't just mean the, the lovely beaches of the southern med where mean or rather the southern coast of europe we do mean libya 
and ISIS and all sorts of different uh, forces of evil. Uh, and it's just, they're just brilliant books. I love them. I have totally. to say, so the blog tour for um, the first book in the series, Bodies in the Water, which is publishing tomorrow, the blog tour began today. And so far, we it's been amazing. We've had such good comments from the reviewers and a lot of goodwill as well coming out on Twitter and on mm. Facebook. And so it's great. I can't wait to publish it tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, writing under the name AJ Aberford. It is uh, Tony Gartland, our guest this week. And we have a bonus episode. We'll tell you now that you'll get an extra bonus episode. It should be managed to record it in time, but we're going to put it out on Wednesday. So two episodes of the Hopcast this week. Episode 81 features the wonderful Vasim Khan, who on Thursday night in Harrogate may well be the proud recipient of the Theakston's Crime Book of the Year uh, at the Harrogate Festival, may well be. So we thought we'd do a sort of, it's a Harrogate preview yeah, show, I suppose, like, yeah. with one of the best authors uh, in the country and certainly deserving of his shortlisting for that amazing award. And just but, a thoroughly lovely chat. Yeah, and very modest as well, saying, you know, it's basically not my turn to win it. It's Ellie Griffiths or... Mick Heron, wasn't it? Mick Heron, yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. And yes, yeah, so they're all worthy win- winners, but uh, Vaseem is uh, is a big uh, feature now in the UK crime f- um, fiction. He's the deputy chair of the CWA, the Daggers, yeah, um, or the, the organisation, the Crime Writers Association. Um, but also has taken a really big role in trying to um, marry the two points of view over increasing diversity in publishing. Mm. And I think that has has found a really good line through it. I think so, yeah. So if you look at his website, you can find um, in sort of a, a video snippet he did about mm. it, about his views on it, and it is very interesting. It's a interesting perspective. It is. His blog is brilliant, too, for all writers. Go go and read Vaseem's blog. We'll, we'll talk him up for Wednesday's show, but uh, we'll be talking to Tony shortly. Let's get into a wee bit of news. Oh, gosh, oh I... Scottish <laughs> influence are, are we, there. Uh, are, we, are we dramas the news? Are, and... we, are we dramas the news? Oh, dear. <laughs> I can feel Linda and Maureen um, <laughs> twisting in their various writing shacks. Yes, and Harry, too. And, and Harry... <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, and Mark. And Mark Whiteman. Yeah, sorry, guys. Um, OK, well, we'll stop with the Scottish accents. It's almost offensive now. Uh, let's have a look at this. Right, well, uh, festival organisers have been uh, driven, they have been for the last three, four years, to be perfectly honest, to think outside the box. This is the headline from the uh, bookseller, and I know you're almost twisting in your sofa right now because you can't stand the phrase, thinking outside the box. I hate it. I hate it. Uh, and it's one of those many, many, many phrases that makes my fingernails crawl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just well, get back in the box. There's some great ideas inside the box, you know. Okay, I'll rewrite it for you so you find it less offensive. Festival <laughs> organisers use blue sky thinking to... Oh, no, 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 blackboard. <laughs> so the issue is that the cost of living uh, is reducing ticket sales. And anecdotally, we, uh, with Lynn Laversha not so long ago for Slaughter in Southwell, but the main Southwell Arts Festival had some issues trying to sell enough tickets for some of its events because uh, Lynn felt that one of the things that the uh, pandemic has created is a reluctance for certain audiences to go back to, you know, mass spectator events, Mm. uh, one thing. And also you get out of the rhythm. I mean, I I know that for certain things, you know, in the past, oh, we've got to get our tickets for X six months ahead. Um, it's coming around soon. You know, Harrogate being a good example, you know, you, you kind of 
just get into the rhythm of it's part of your year. And yeah. when, that, when that disappears during the pandemic, it's very hard for things to, to come back. Um, I'm thinking also of the uh, festival that's organised in Ampthill in Bedfordshire, which is where Robert Dawes lives. Um, they had a, a wonderful community-run festival with um, uh, a series of music events So in, in their park. They have a wonderful park there, so proms in the park kind of thing. And they would always invite, uh, for one night, there'd be some great sort of music acts, um, you know, popular music acts, I would say. Uh, they had to cancel theirs this year because people didn't buy the tickets fast enough for them to guarantee to be able to pay the artists. Mm, it's uh, tricky. It is. Anyway, um, let's have a look at what this article says. The roster of literary festivals has never been so packed. That is absolutely true. With new events such as the Brighton Book Festival uh, being created. That's by Caroline Bain, who runs Afrori Books in uh, Brighton, which is the first black-owned bookshop in Sussex. However, despite the rising cost and post-COVID worries, we've seen music festivals such as Brainchild and Summerfest cancel this year. Literary event organisers say demand remains healthy and optimistic for the future. And Christina Fuentes Laroche, who is the international director at the Hay Festival, which runs for two weeks uh, at the end of May and beginning of June, um, said that uh, uh, they were cautious planning their spring festival due to the lingering effects of COVID-19 on in-person events. They actually met, did quite well in their winter weekend in Hay on Wye. But um, they have had lots and lots of people, uh, lots and lots of uh, festivals are saying their, their sales are down. So uh, the thing that's keeping bloody Scotland afloat at the moment is the the digital offering that they have. So people attending virtually. Yeah, which is a great thing, isn't it? Because there are people who can't go for distance reasons. For, and that, that also reduces the cost because they haven't got the travel and the hotel. So they are thinking outside the box to some degree. And that's thanks to COVID, isn't it? The sort of the rise of the virtual element of these things. So Yeah, and Bloody Scotland is running for four days. It's actually longer this year. Yes, I saw. Their yeah. 10th anniversary. And uh, they announced their programme uh, Saturday in fact, and uh, they have some big names, as you might expect. Alex Gray, Denzel Mayrick, Ian Rankin, Abir, Abir Mukherjee, Ellie Griffiths and others. And uh, get this, we ought to have asked him about this. There is going to be a crime at the Coup Cabaret and Vaseem and Abir's Red Hot Night oh. of a Million Games, which replaces the usual quiz. That sounds fun. Yeah, that does sound fun. Anyway, look. Everyone's having to innovate to keep going. Yes. Same in publishing. So let's Same get into, in everything, yes. Let's get into our next story, which is well, rather predictable, um, which is that Boris Johnson is set to be offered at least seven figures. Well, it will be seven figures for his memoir. Oh, what a read that'll be. Yeah. Now, it's hard to believe that uh, this time last week he was still firmly our prime minister and not even resigned by that point, I think. No, it's more than that, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. I've been back from Wales a week. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, two uh, weeks, two it's, weeks. It's, yeah, less than two weeks. It's all... And it, he... Um, I was reading in one or two of the newspapers that uh, basically he's told his people, his management, uh, to get him as many gigs as possible uh, after he steps down as prime minister because he needs to buy a house for he and his little family. Well, she's got lots of kids from other women, but um, we're talking specifically his, his two uh, most recent additions to the family. Um, they've got nowhere to live because the places he does own are rented out on long-term tenancy agreements, one in Oxfordshire and one in the centre of, of London. So 
He's looking for somewhere and he needs over a million quid to go and buy somewhere. The Wolverhampton underpass? He could live there. He could, he could. Well, anyway, look, yeah, it will be a big bidding war. There's no question about it for his memoirs. And, you know, he is already a hugely successful author of books about Churchill and, and various other things. And uh, But then it ought to be reminded that, yeah, all very well, Boris, but you do have an existing contract to write a book about Shakespeare, which I know, has been I'd be quite, four years. I'd be quite upset if I was the editor. You know, there's all this stuff about his memoirs, and I think, well, hang on a minute, where's our book? Well, yeah, apparently he's already been advanced half a million quid uh, some years ago for a book on Shakespeare, and um, yeah, nothing has been seen of it yet. No. So. Um, he needs to get on he with that He needs a one. good poke. He does. Yeah, I'd love to... You know, you should be his editor. <laughs> I think that'd be hilarious. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he, he'd have to write a crime book for You us. think you have trouble working with, you know, with me? Try try, try the... Uh, the, well, the I'm sort of a... I have, I have Boris tendencies. No. I mean, not really, but, you know... Um, You've put it out there now. You said you have Boris tendencies. Well, um, absolutely. And it bluster. Uh, You keep saying there's going to be a little ginger person coming to the door and saying, hello, Dad. Yeah, probably. Probably. Well, I say little, I'll be in their 30s. Let's not go there on the podcast. (laughs) Let's not do that. Uh, Anyway, so uh, he will also command at least £50,000 of speech on the international speech circuit. I mean, if Theresa May is getting... 30,000, then Boris gets 50 easy. Um, That's ridiculous. That it, really is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. And in the past, he's been paid for speeches and just turned up without any actual speech. So he's just done his thing. And, you know, one of the reasons why his uh, you know his reign as Prime Minister uh, unraveled a little bit was, but the, you know, the times he turned up to a CBI event. Remember, we talked about this oh, up yeah. in the northeast, where uh, it won't be to Pepper Pig World. Yeah, one of them must go. And one of his like, finer moments. And it was like three hundred miles drive for these business people in in Middlesbrough to get to to Pepper Pig World, um, as if they were going to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, that was uh, we all, as we all must, we must be more like Pepper Pig. Yeah, you know, and goodness me. So, anyway, that, that Farago is nearly over. We've got a leadership election at the moment within the Conservative Party. And which, it's all they talk about on the radio. <laughs> well, it's yeah, the debate that should have been held... So this is Monday we're recording this. It's hot. It's extremely hot in, across the UK. Or certainly in, in England, it's ridiculously hot. Um, they've cancelled tonight's leadership debate because two of the candidates have pulled out. Because they're, they're too hot? No, because the, the damage that these debates are having uh, on each other... I mean, honestly, you can't make all this rubbish up. But anyway, that's that's the nature of it. You've got one little th- uh, book that you want to uh, bring to people's attention, which yeah. you spotted in the list of things that are being published in the bookseller. Well, you know what I'm like. Anything that's a bit weird and wacky attracts my attention. So every now and then the bookseller does a um, previews of the titles mm. coming out. And there's hundreds of them. But the one that caught my eye is this one. Cat Hair, Hats for Cats, which is publishing by 10 Speed Press. Um, and it's basically a book of stylish hats made out of cat hair for cats. Right, let me have a look at this. <laughs> I'm just saying, right. Uh, £12.99. Hardback edition, yes. I'll give you the ISBN later. No, I mean, <laughs> so there's a lovely sort of white pussy cat there with a Viking helmet on. It's cute. Right. <laughs> this contains instructions for creating 25 stylish hats along with tips for grooming and photographing your cat. Good luck with that. Um, where where does one get the hair? From the cat. Oh, so you knit 
How can you knit the hair of it? Have you seen how much hair comes off on I know, cats? I know, but how do you then get it into a, a yarn? Well, you, did you not do this at school, at primary school, how to make wool? No, I did not. I can't believe you didn't learn how to make wool at school. So you have to... Well, um, no, I mean, you know, we were being prepared for management, not for... Oh, you went to posh school, didn't you? Not for, <laughs> not for you know, a trade. Uh, okay, uh, uh, my bog standard primary, we learned how to make wool. So well, you're quite basically... right, yeah, you need the manual so you get skills the, to you work get the in the wool. No, sheep's wool isn't, you know, it's, it's all sort of a clump. And you need it to start with, with two sort of... Oh, don't give me the full description. What? But how can you do... Cat hair is a completely different no, thing to sheep wool, No, you can knit with cat hair. Just, just we'll, we'll, it, we'll look into it after the podcast, but oh, you can Lord. do it. good Lord. Bro, I'll tell you what I'm going to ask the, the listeners to do. <laughs> Please send in your samples of cat hair that you... You know, when you run your hand down the back of the cat, our one is just producing copious amounts of... Have you co- really just asked people to send cat yeah, hair? Yeah, and then I want you to demonstrate by the end of next week how it's done. I haven't got the equipment. Well, now you say. I haven't got a spinning jenny behind the sofa. Well, we'll find one. <laughs> Can't we turn our exercise bike, in, indoor static bike into one of those? Oh, wow, there's an idea. Anyway, goodness me. Well, I mean... We, it, should, we should get into the interview, really, now, should we? We should, we should. I was just going to say, I mean, you, you were always attracted by books like this because um, you bought... Uh, uh, Men in Kilts by Bob McDevitt, who's the director of Bloody Scotland, not knowing that later you would actually meet the guy. I know, and he was my hero, not for anything he's done for Bloody Scotland, but for that book. Absolutely, yeah. No, no, no. So, I mean, you do have an eye for those sort of books. Anyway, that is coming out. Uh, let's just remind you when the date is on the 11th of September, is it? I'm or not July? sure. I, I think know. it is autumn. Autumn books. It's the autumn books. Anyway, well done to the author. We ought to give the name of that. That's it's two uh, authors, isn't there? Oh, Roggy Man and Umatan. <laughs> They've got to be uh, pseudonyms, haven't they? Uh, nom de plume or whatever they're called. Right, well, writing under a nom de plume, AJ Haberford, is Tony Gartland. Tony um, has been with us for a few, few uh, months now, and we are bringing out three of his wonderful books set in Malta, the George Zamet series. And, uh, you know, as you say, the reviews are, are terrific for these. Uh, Tony's uh, background is, is quite varied, actually. He's a sort of portfolio career, I would describe, but uh, mostly in the law, moving around different branches of the law uh, before creating. This, is, this excites me that we've got an author who does this thing. <laughs> um, one of the sort of pioneering and most successful microbreweries in the country in 2003, and that's the Salt Air Brewery uh, in Bradford. And, um, and sorry, Skipton, actually, if I'm being technical, but in, in, uh, in that part of Yorkshire. And it is uh, extremely successful, and the beer is marvellous. Uh, but he's been based in Malta for a few years and has now turned his hand to writing, having said that you know, he was commuting from Malta to business meetings and that sort of thing, and reading tons and tons of books. I can do this. And boy, and can he? he can. He really can. So, oh dear, my stomach. That was my stomach. That was your stomach. <laughs> Good heavens. That really wasn't pleasant. Um, let's talk to the wonderful Tony Gartland. Well, it's a really great pleasure to speak to Tony Gartland, otherwise known for the purposes of books as <laughs> AJ Aberford. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you so much. My first ever podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Is it really? first ever podcast and it's with us. What a double tree. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I can't believe that. Well, look, first of all, we need to explain where you're speaking from. Not necessarily the specific room, yeah. but the more the wider geographical location, because yeah. you are in Malta. I am indeed. Um, 
I mean, Malta, it's part of the EU. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the Euro, but it's, um, it's actually geographically further south than Tunis. So as a place, it kind of cleaves more to North Africa than it does to Europe. But um, we're still within, we're within an hour's reach on the ferry of Sicily. So it has that kind of Southern European feel to it. Food, basically Italian, but the, the politics and everything else tend to be more North African. So it's a bit of a wild west politically, but um, culturally has got a heavy Italian influence, which makes it uh, a fascinating place to live and write in. I yeah, imagine, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you talk yeah, about we're, we're all quite jealous, aren't we? <laughs> this kind of wild west feel to it, but you know, let's be honest. Uh, I don't wish to disparage the Italians too much, but I mean, they're not exactly known for stable governance, are they? No, they're not. <laughs> it's, it's the sort of sort of Mediterranean thing. I think you find it in you know you find it in Greece and you find it in southern Spain, and you know it's um, there's a kind of a different uh, moral basis. I think with Malta particularly, it's got only got four hundred fifty thousand people, so it's uh, it's the size of Birmingham, and it's an island, and it tends to be quite kind of insular. Everybody knows everybody else. If there's a car crash, you just find it. You know, the traffic just locks up because everybody thinks they know who might be involved. So, um, you know, everyone does favours for each other. There's a lot of nepotism. It's quite a closed, tight society, which makes for interesting government. Um, two political parties locked sort of, uh, you know, horns by the horns against each other. Um, and, of course, you know, recently, to the shame of the island, you know, the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia you know, against a background of money laundering, corruption, and all sorts of exciting things like that, which basically gave me the um, the juice to put pen to paper. I was going to say, so why then romance, as it known? No. <laughs> 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 no, clearly that's not the case. Um, your books, the George Zamet series, which we're publishing um, the week that this podcast goes out, uh, it's it's set against that that background. And what I love about George just to I mean I'll ask you more questions about the character but he is such an unlikely uh, hero in these books in the sense that uh, he is well let's put it this way he's not an athlete is he he's not an athlete he's um he's a bit of a I, I think of him as a bit of an everyman really it's uh I, mean, I used to do a lot, a lot of traveling between the UK and Malta UK and Malta I read a lot of books um, and when I wanted a character, I didn't want it to be Icelandic. I didn't want it to be Scandinavian. I didn't want it to be Scottish, with all due regard to lots of your other fantastic writers. Yep. But um, I wanted somebody different. I wanted a kind of person who buffeted by events and had that kind of, you know, sort of strange, re- strange reaction to things, you know, with the moral ambivalence of the situations he found himself in. And that's what I hope makes the character interesting and that's that's why I like him and as the books have progressed he kind of has has developed um, a sort of a more refined moral compass if you like and gradually starts to as he is elevated up through the the Maltese police starts to challenge some of the precepts and some of the behaviors that he sees Um, and that's what's made it fun for me you know developing George as a as a character against a set of highly unlikely protagonists who are equally entertaining for me to write about. 
I, I think we can feel that in the in the as, as the books are progressing so the, the three that we've got that you are having a lot of fun with the character because yeah. uh, adrian he keeps telling me how much he loves george don't you <laughs> i do i do look as a man of, of a certain girth uh i, I mean around the waist um oh, no, no, no. <laughs> sorry um but you know he he appeals to me and as a henpecked husband uh, he also appeals to me. Oh, from your previous marriage? Yes, my talking. previous marriage. I'm not talking about the current incumbent uh, of the future. Well, I'm marriage. not actually an incumbent. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we have something in common. I mean, George. George loves food, as as do I, and he always manages to find a, a scrap of a pasty or a scrap of a croissant in his in, in in his pocket. And when times get very stressful, he can always just reach for a crumb just to sustain him and give him that little sugar rush. Do you know, so, do you know what? On the way back from the car, he offered me a melted Jaffa cake from his pocket. Well, you see, he's been reading too many George books. <laughs> I said, no, thanks. <laughs> I don't blame you. So let, let's focus on, on bodies in the water. So we, we've got George Zamet. He's an inspector in a, well, I mean, it's a fairly bland bit of the Polizia in Malta. Uh, but he finds himself on the dockside and there's a body in the water, hence bodies in the water. Well, that's one of the bodies in the water. The first one triggers an extraordinary uh, series of events, which brings him into contact with not only organized crime, but bent senior officers and um, warlords in Libya, as, as you do. Indeed. I mean, if, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this is day-to-day -day kind of currency in Malta that it was based around the, um, the migrant crisis, fundamentally. And George is sent to a quadrance um, in, in Tripoli, in Libya, of which there have been many, to deal with the reaction of the Italians and the Maltese and everybody else who's been trying to manage this terrible situation. Um, and there he finds himself basically kidnapped. So he's, uh, for, for, in unlikely circumstances, he finds himself up against a militia leader. And once you get out of Tripoli, and even within Tripoli these days, uh, Libya is run by the militia, you know, and there are militias for different parts. It's a lawless place, being locked in civil war since Gaddafi died in 2014. Yeah. Um, it's, and this is only 200 miles south of Malta, so it's very much, you know, common currency and common knowledge, what's going on there. So George finds himself getting knocked around by this militia leader with who he then becomes an unlikely friend and an ally. They both have to escape um, from Libya. And to do that, the only way of doing it basically is to find themselves on a migrant raft when they have the experience of a crossing of the Southern Mediterranean. Um, <laughs> and they go through all the experiences that um, many of the people who land on this island have been through. Yeah. Um, and they go to a bit of in Lampedusa, which is an Italian island about 150 kilometers off the coast of um, Libya. And that's really where they aim for. Uh, and they have adventures along the way. And George then, through cunning that you wouldn't expect him to have, resolves the situation, rescues them, and re-establishes themselves and the, and the militia leader in Malta. And I don't want to give away too much more than that. No, no, I mean, that's pretty much yeah. the, the sweep of it. And um, so we're talking about Abdullah as the uh, the character that we're talking about in terms of that unlikely friendship. Um, again, beautifully drawn, just compelling. Um, and then there are 
other characters who are recurring throughout the series who are hugely influential. Uh, above George within the police force is Gerald, Gerald Camilleri. I think I pronounced yeah. it correctly. Who is um, who's one of those arch operators between being a you know a law um, breaker and a law enforcer? Yeah, one of those people who everyone knows, everyone has to deal with, and has fingers in every pie. Um, he's again just compelling. Uh, I mean, one of those villains you love to love. Actually, I mean, I you can't help ones, but you though, can't help they? but admire. <laughs> the the chutzpah of the man like Darth Vader a villain you love he's, a bit, he's a bit like he's a bit like Darth Vader I suppose yes but he's um <laughs> yeah I mean Gerald picks he picks his fights basically you know he he understands that Malta will always have white collar crime it'll always have Muslim money laundering it will always have um you know smuggling oil smuggling things of that sort what he will not tolerate, of course, is drugs. He won't tolerate trafficking. He won't tolerate you know, a whole series of things. He won't tolerate anything that disturbs the streets of Malta. So he has his line, you know, and you can't cross his line. If you cross his line, it won't betide you. But um, he, you know, he understands that if the, the politicians of the day want to allow people to help themselves to the public purse, what concern is that of his? Yeah. So there's a... There's an ambivalence about him, which, uh, again, he makes him great fun to write about. You know, it's if characters, I think, too, too couldn't, you know, too, too clean cut, and either one side of the line or the other, it tends to be a little bit uh, less fun. But with these people who straddle this sort of, you know, the the the, the, the line between right and wrong, and um, are involved in this sort of moral dichotomy, um, again, it makes it great fun to write about, and hopefully great fun to read about. I think so. Less think of a so. villain than Boris Johnson. Well, uh, I would think he's a Michael Gove figure. Really, <laughs> I haven't really, I haven't really seen how Gerald would stand up in the current list of candidates for leadership of the Conservative Party. I'll vote for him. Well, he would appeal to a certain type of, of Tory voter, I think. But um, he, he, he might, he might do. I'm just trying to think who he would be. But no, no. Anyway, let's. Not I, don't, go I don't think he'd ever front up and put himself forward. That's the thing. He'd always. No, that's right. He'd, he'd always be the kingmaker. Not the, he, not would, the he would. He would be sort of. Yeah, he'd be 1922 committee. He'd be Graham Brady. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the closest. I always think of him when I when I'm thinking of him as a sort of um, a Maltese uh, Francis Urquhart character, as in the, oh, yes. the original uh, British yeah. version, yeah. as opposed yeah. to the one that 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 would work. Yes. Yeah, rather than Frank Underwood in um, in the American. Yes. Uh, but uh, then. The, the, the sort of final one of the, I suppose, the, the quartet of key characters that we've got to know is Natasha Bonici. Now, she is um, quite an extraordinary character in that she is the daughter of a, of a baron, you know, a sort of crime baron, um, part of the family based in Milan. I mean, you know, essentially uh, a crime syndicate family. And her arc... Um, not necessarily through the first book, but certainly subsequent books, is she rises up and she will stop at nothing. She's a real sort of, I don't know, Black Widow, Spider kind of character, isn't she? She is. I, mean, I think the sort of, one of the things that is fascinating about Malta in particular is the history um, and the time of the, the knights who arrived in 1565, I think it was, and had the great fight of the siege of Malta with Suleiman the Great and everything else. So we're steeped in that antiquity. The buildings are here, the yeah. palaces are here, the history's here. And 
the way I see the Benicis and the family, the crime family, are almost like the Medicis, like a medieval financial guild, of whom there were many, you know, and in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to wage war or if you were a pope and you wanted to extend the, your reach, you know, you needed money. And you went to people like this, and, you know, they might have been Venetians, they may have been the sort of, you know, you, it was against the rules of, well, it was against the, I think it was uh, the Holy Roman Empire forbade the fact of borrowing money. So this was where yeah. the court came in, because if you were Jewish, you could borrow money. You know, you weren't a Christian, so that was fine. So everybody had a court due, and this was where it came from. I do what I write with this, but I think I think I am. So there was these things were financed in different ways. And what the family is, the family is a hangover from those times who came up through sort of the Habsburg period, funded the Austrian state in World War One, lost it all, and then reconstituted themselves for modern times. And Natasha, who you mentioned, is the latest manifestation who wants to take the family through to the 21st century and to use the, you know, the, the structure of this medieval guild of old blue-blooded aristocrats who lurk around the clubs of Milan or Vienna um, and re-establish them as a power base. It yeah. all sounds very grand, but it's a, it is an entertainment business. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, this is a thriller. I mean, in the sense that... Yeah. Um, Yes, of course, we're starting off with the protagonist, uh, the key protagonist who's a policeman, but this is not a police procedural in, in, in any no, way. No, no. This, is, this is a sweeping, um, you know, multinational, multi-character, complex series of thrillers which touch uh, or deal with contemporaneous themes and the things that you see going on around you in Malta uh, and the Mediterranean and, um, and, and bring them to life. And, uh, you know, yes, it is like, you know, there are... I mean, you know, if you're being hypercritical, if you can't suspend your disbelief for just, you know, a little bit, you, you might come back and say, well, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. But that's that's great fiction. You know, it's a bit like what Graham Bartlett said, didn't he? When yeah. We interviewed him. So he's yeah. an advisor, police procedural advisor. And he said, if you wrote it exactly true to word, you'd be asleep by page 25. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, quite, quite, quite. The world's a fascinating place. There's a lot going on. And I think. I think in the, when I go back to the UK, I am always surprised by the narrow focus of the UK press, of UK politics, the sort of the national obsession that we have. Whereas if you live you know, in Europe, there is a much broader sort of base of information. There's a wider sort of, there's a wider style of interests. And particularly if you live in the South, you know, the your area of influences from sort of Israel, from Syria, you know, right the way around through the Balkans, Turkey, you know, and there's there's so much happening in this area, and obviously now with Ukraine and the Bosphorus and uh, up into the Black Sea, you know, these the this is the the currency of conversation. And um, you know, I'll be back to England next week. We'll all be talking about you know Northern Ireland or you know the, the World Cup in Qatar or, or whatever. You know, if if we're lucky, um, and the Tory and of course the Tory Party election. So it's it's good to be here, and it's good to have this kind of different perspective on the geopolitics of what's going on and that that does make life more interesting and more stimulating in, in some ways yeah we should send toby there he'd love it he would yeah so toby is my youngest and he is very interested in geopolitics and and the international <laughs> I, relations. You see i see him as a potential benici kind of <laughs> figure is he oh well I was, I, I was going to invite him to come and stay but i think i changed my mind yeah <laughs> 
he's he's having hormonal issues. He's twelve, but turning oh, thirteen. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm definitely. Hard. I mean, I've, I've already <laughs> had two boys, but I'm out of practice. <laughs> no, this, this, he, he's going to be a, because he's he's brighter than the rest of us put together. Yeah. And um, he's cunning too. He's too clever, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's too clever by half. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm beginning to, That's great. yeah, I'm beginning to damn him in the eyes of future employers, which um, is a few <laughs> few years away yet. Uh, so. Before we move away from the, 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 the specifically the books, I w- wanted to because I'm, I'm having the pleasure of, of um, uh, proofreading and uh, your book, uh, your third book at the moment. And this is uh, I say pleasure. I mean, you know, proofreading is not usually my uh, my number one thing, but I'm really enjoying this because I get the chance to really get close to the text. And what I love about your writing is, and it's really sort of been hammered home over the last 24 hours as I've been reading it you are brilliant at making sure every single character and this is something that a lot of writers forget brings their own motivation to every scene you know throughout each scene what they're all trying to get out of it there's no one as a no one's a passenger in any scene they've all got got some angle they've all got an angle they've all got um defined ways that they're going to react to a certain situation to some extent or you, you discover that as you go along but bottom line everyone is working an angle within your stories and I think a lot of authors forget that's what you need to do because it makes every character compelling everything that they do after that becomes alive because of you are in their mindset you can understand what they're thinking I think it's just I mean, I think it just comes down to efficiency, to be honest with you. You know, if you if I if I do a first draft, it can end up at 140,000 words, you know, and you think, well, I know for, as a fact that that gives you problems on, on the production front. So, you know, yeah. you, we've got to get it down. So then I will I will hand it out to my, you know, my brilliant editor, Lynn Curtis, and Lynn will come back and say, you must be joking. You know, you can't do this. You can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. And then I'll give it to my wife, Janet, and she'll turn to me, oh, I don't like that. No, I don't think so. So by <laughs> process of elimination, you end up with something. And then you think, well, I'm still at 130,000 words. So, you know, you have to cut rubbish out. So I, I try and cut out anything that is not sort of relevant to the plot. And, you know, I'm always worried about pace, that a story flags, you know, that um, it's just not moving along fast enough. So I'll then go through a final cut when it's just about finished and just take out odd sentences or I'll take out bits and I have been known to take out whole chapters. And I think, well, actually that chapter doesn't really serve any purpose. You know, yeah. It might have a, a funny piece in or some humor, but you think, well, okay, it doesn't really earn its keep in terms of the, the word count. So you chop it down again. So it's, uh, it's all about getting it between this 110 and 115,000 words if I can. So yeah. that's, probably why the kind of the thing and they're quite big stories they're quite big plots and they're quite sort of complex plots and there's not a lot of room for um meandering put it like that yeah yeah no i, I admire that i admire that and i have say, to because i know a lot of writers find that process really difficult because yeah. especially like you said there's, there's a chapter with a bit of humor in it you really like you're almost you know very attached to it and think, well, oh, that's yeah. really I, I, want, I wanted to say i mean actually you had me laughing out loud uh, so Bex was going, what, what are you laughing about? And that, uh, last yesterday <laughs> afternoon. He was, he was chuckling away to and, himself. Uh, well, I, well, I won't give too much away because obviously we aren't quite at book three yet, but it's not that far away. Um, it is, uh, you know, the, the, the British couple that you put in book three with the yacht. Oh, yeah, on the, on the boat. Tom P. Oh, and I just yeah. love, uh, now it's Marjorie and uh, Tom, Tom, Tom P, yes. Tom P. Tom P. Yeah. 
He's just honestly, it's comic gold. It's 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 a bit like stepping back into the seventies and the good life and that sort of thing. But, <laughs> but uh, I must admit, I really I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, I, it comes through because I mean, just to give people. I mean, it, it is basically uh, he's an absolute ass of a man. Um, having been in the ex-Navy, but bossing his wife around to do everything. It's just, it's comic gold. It really is. It's fantastic. So congratulations well, glad, on that. I'm glad you enjoyed it, yeah. Oh, no, I loved I loved every minute. And and, and so, I'm, you know, rolling around. But there's a lot of humour in your books, even though there's a lot of bloodshed. Um, there's a lot of bad deeds being go- going on. There's that gallows humour that goes through it too. Um, and, and But I mean, that, that, there is that element. But in Bodies in the Water, when we're dealing with, those people on the raft the genuine refugees the ones that are desperate to start a new life in europe your depiction of their plight also partly through the fact that uh your two you know heroes unlikely heroes in in abdullah particularly and george are on that boat all of them suffering all of them getting to the point of near delusion and death um it really really is beautifully done i mean i i I challenge anybody to read that section of the book and not be moved by the plight of people who take those risks. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, it, it, it's a tragedy, you know, it's an absolute tragedy. And if you see these um, Maltese sort of gunboats coming in or the, um, the refuge, you know, the, the, um, the humanitarian sort of rescue boats yeah. come in and bundle old people. And, you know, I've, I've been down there and watched it. it it's, 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 it's terrible. It's an absolute tragedy, and the way Malta doesn't cover itself in glory with the way it treats the, the migrants. Um, you know, they live, they live in camps which are, I mean, they're, they're small concentration camps. You know, um, they don't have any rights. They don't have work. They stand on the roadside looking for day labour jobs. You know, um, and it's uh, and there's racism, endemic racism. You know, so it's. And I just feel so bad that they go through that experience and they end up here. And then from here, they might go to Sicily, you know, and the Southern Italians are not exactly known for their <laughs> gentle handling of this situation. No. Um, yeah. And you just wonder what they're hoping for, you know, and what, and wise, I suppose it shows you what they're running away from. Yes. Because yeah, exactly. If they, if they put up with that, quality yeah. of life that means it was much worse yeah yeah absolutely. and the climate change and what's happening in the Sahel you know this is just going to become a stronger flow you know because south of Sahara and Chad and places like that you know fifth year of drought um you know ISIS on the rise and I mean it's a humanitarian disaster mm. and people are going to start flooding north and you know I mean Putin actually then keeps his grain to himself and people can't make bread you know it'll just make exacerbate the situation yeah yeah it's a very bleak outlook at the moment absolutely no question about it and i think you capture that brilliantly but i do think that's an important part of uh, your role as a writer though you're writing a fictional story but you're making people think making them yeah. aware especially in this country we're talking about how insular our thinking can be sometimes so you know i think anything that you could do as a writer to but that's that's almost that. a recent phenomenon in the sense that you know malta and as you described very clearly um was a british naval base you know queen elizabeth herself and prince philip uh, just before she became queen she had her happiest period of their marriage was being based yeah. in malta um yeah. so you know it's not like we don't know the area as a as a, as a nation um you know we've still got gibraltar but we have you know <laughs> malta was it was just as important 
It was interesting because Malta, when it became a republic in the mid-70s, yeah. joined the sort of the non-aligned nations group. And I don't know whether you remember the non-aligned group. And again, it's part of our UK European focus, you know, that we think of the West and the Americans as the block, and then we have the, the autocratic East, be it Russia or China or whatever. But there's this enormous block of it, with India and South American countries and the African countries who are sort of non-aligned between them. And Malta stood out uh, as a European section of this non-aligned group in the, in the early days. And they wouldn't put up with American aid and they wouldn't put up with, didn't accept any Russian aid. I mean, the population nearly starved. But I mean, um, other than that, you know, they came from this different political background and they have um, a non-alignment provision in their constitution. So when they talked to Zelensky, when he was doing his Zoom rounds, trying to rally support, Malta told him they could forget it. You know, he's getting no help from, um, from Malta because Malta was non-partisan and didn't get involved in this sort of stuff. So, <laughs> so different mind, slightly different mindset. Congratulations on the books. Uh, as I say, they'll be coming out over the next few weeks and uh, the, the bookshops of Malta will be stuffed with copies because we just had a big order for them. So um, we're looking forward to uh, to getting those into people's hands. And I think it's going to be uh, one of those book series that just has legs. I think it's just great. Lots really... of legs, like a centipede. Well, I, yeah, it's just I find it compelling. I love George as a character, he is the ultimate anti-hero in the, in the sense that, you know, a bit like Bergerac, you know, being a cop on an island at the centre of international finance and intrigue, there's lots and lots of stories potentially, but he's the least likely John Nettles. John Nettles would not be the person you would pick to play George Zamet. But who would you pick then? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I think I've got a feeling that if he would bulk up for the role, Mark Rylance would be perfect. No idea who that is. Uh, well, Mark Rylance... Um, we were due to see him. You would know who he was if we'd been to Jerusalem, that play that we were due to go and see. What's he been in? Uh, he's been in Wolf Hall. No idea. Okay, look, he's one of these. He's probably the best actor of his generation, but he just doesn't do a lot of TV stuff. Um, yeah, he's he's been in loads of stuff. Okay, but um, he is. You know a, me and famous people. But he's one of those great actors who's great because you don't really know the Mark Rylance for real because his performances are so all-consuming and brilliant that he's completely different from the person. He doesn't do a lot of publicity, but, yeah, he's terrific. So I'd put Mark Rylance down, but he'd have to bulk up to be a little bit portly. Yes, OK. I'll look him up later. OK, right. Well, that was wonderful. So uh, those books, well, uh, the very first one, Bodies in the Water, comes out on Tuesday. So well, this podcast uh, eventually goes live. A few, a few hours, in fact, really. In a few hours, the, yeah. So this podcast is going live in a f- couple of hours. That's extremely exciting. And our week ahead, well, it's, it's sort of dominated by Harrogate looming on the horizon. Yes, um, so busy week because we've got to fit in the work with um, all sorts of other domestic duties we've got and then get into Harrogate. And, um, but... Yeah, and it's super hot. It's um, the UK experiencing its hottest ever temperatures uh, in the next couple of days. It's which... the first time we've had a red warning, apparently. It is. It is. And, Wouldn't you know, if it does hit 43 degrees in the south of Cambridge England, is supposed to be the hottest. Yeah. Uh, don't you worry. My son Ben's clocked that one, which is where he's due to return to. <laughs> he's going to sit in the fridge. <laughs> he's in Manchester at the minute where I dropped him off last night. Um, but when he gets back to work, yeah, it'll be the hottest place. Yeah. He's so. probably got an air-conditioned office, though, hasn't he? I believe so, but 
no air conditioning can co- in this country can cope with that sort of level of of, of heat. So uh, yeah, and he's got to travel by train. Well, can you imagine? A, that's the difference between living here and living in a hot country where they used or a country that experiences mm. heat like this. So when I lived in Japan, we, the highest I think was forty six, and that was a, regarded as a heat wave. But we coped because there were air conditioned cars and buildings, mm. and and that was thirty years ago. So we had no air conditioning no, I mean, that, years, the, years the, ago. The, the fact is that in the UK, we we don't build buildings to cope with heat you know at least domestic buildings because we didn't need to we have never needed to but now we do and um you know it's more often than not um that we're going to get extreme temperatures like this and it just is it's you know we just don't cope um as a as a nation particularly well with this sort of stuff but yeah these but we are, love the, to talk about it yeah but these are life-threatening temperatures for a lot of people so um you know particularly in london or somewhere like that it'd be, it'd be absolutely appalling but anyway we will cope we've got a busy week we've got tons to do we also have another book coming out the week after this do we not or is it the week week after? Uh, no it is next, it is next week and it is the uh amazing verity quirks. vanishes yes the quirk files the They're quirk back. files with Pedro verity and vanishes so july is actually Morgan. a busy publishing yeah. month for us well i finished um getting the audio ready for, for release, hopefully at the same time as the thing. So that was last week's sort of mega task, or one of the two or three out that I had before I went to the sco- the golf. I've got more to come this week. I know you've got me with lots of things to do. Uh, but that's the nature of running Hobbit Books, and it's always the case. If you'd like to know more about Hobbit Books, don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net. And don't forget, we'll be back probably in this sofa. In a couple of days. In a couple of days with our next edition of the Hobcast. You're going to get several this week, or at least you're getting at least two. Get two this week. But we're also at Harrogate. Harrogate so we'll, we'll hoover up as many wonderful interviews and authors as possible and get, bring you the flavour of the festival. Now we should just say that um, we sent the newsletter, a weekly newsletter out this morning. I was late again. It just slipped my mind again. I, I don't know You've what's wrong with my brain. <laughs> crazily busy. And um, I included a little competition in the newsletter. So if you subscribe to us and you haven't read the newsletter yet, do take a look. We are going to offer a paperback copy of Bodies in the Water for somebody who can come up with the best, most original, bizarrest, random question for us to ask somebody famous at Harrogate. I don't know who we're going to ask. It could be Val, it could be Ian again, or it could be um, M.W. Craven, whoever we manage to um, persuade <laughs> to talk to us. I will ask the random question chosen by one of our subscribers. Okay. Well, I can't wait to find out what that is. And I'm sure all those authors are now thinking, of, do we really need to go to Harrogate? <laughs> They're cancelling their tickets. They now. are. They are. So next episode is with Vasim Khan. comes out on Wednesday. It's a couple of days' time from when you've got this one. Uh, for that, Thank you so much for joining us for episode 80 of The Hobcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. It means a great deal to us. The more subscribers we got, you know, it gives us a great deal of leverage in the gives marketplace. Gives us meaning in life, it too. It does, too. It does. But from me, Agent Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And it remains for both of us to say, we hope you have a wonderful and creative, creative week. week. Bye-bye. been listening to the hobcast from hobeck books with adrian hobart and rebecca collins you can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net 
You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Thank you.